Find out what the whole world is thinking in The Agenda. Hello and welcome to The Agenda. I'm Stephen Cole. As the conflict in Ukraine pushes the European Union into a new era, this week we have an exclusive interview with a man in charge of Europe's defence and security, Stefano Sonino. He's Secretary General of the European External Action Service. As the conflict in Ukraine continues, there's rarely been a more important time for diplomacy in Europe. Foreign relations, security and defence have never been so high on the European Union's agenda. All these issues come within the remit of the European External Action Service. Joining me now from Brussels is its Secretary General, Stefano Sanino. Um, Stefano, can you tell us more uh, about your remit, what the service is seeking to do? Well, the External Action Service is a combination of a foreign ministry, defence ministry and, a, and an intelligence agency. So we are bringing together all the different streams uh, um, of activity uh, um, concerning, uh, um, let's say, the external and security dimension. And uh, um, me as Secretary General of, uh, of this structure, I'm the one that is trying to uh, give a political steer and the um, administrative steer to these processes. It sounds to me as though it's a European Union foreign ministry by a different name. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, uh, um, <laughs> in a way it is. Uh, uh, foreign policy in the European Union has uh, a different uh, uh, dimension in the sense that uh, it has to do also with the uh, uh, horizontal policies of the European Union. I mean, the energy policy or the uh, um, uh, environmental policy. So in a way, it's a sort of hybrid of uh, um, uh, different things. So it's not the 28th foreign minister, but it's something that is bringing together the characteristics of a national foreign ministry, but adjust to the uh, EU dimension. Because as far as I know, over the last years, the EU hasn't wanted a fully-fledged European ministry, foreign ministry, has it? So this is, this well, is the compromise. <laughs> well, it's the, uh, the idea, is that, first of all, that foreign policy still remains, like defence policy still remains very much a remit of uh, um, national uh, administrations of different member states. But at the same time, there is a very strong need for a, a coordination, harmonisation, and a capacity also to link, as I was saying before, the uh, foreign policy dimension, the more traditional foreign policy dimension, to the properly European foreign policy dimension. If you look at national administration, it's difficult to find in foreign ministries' expertise uh, uh, dealing with uh, uh, policies, again, like energy or environment or digital um, or agriculture. And that's what we are trying to bring together here. So to add a new dimension, a new angle that you do not have at national uh, level, and at the same time, harmonizing and coordinating the position with 27. That sounds a great deal of diplomacy involved there. Uh, <laughs> Definitely, yes. A lot of work. <laughs> I, I bet. And of course, the new dimension is Ukraine. That must be top uh, of your agenda. How would you describe how the European Union has reacted to the conflict there? 
Uh, indeed, it is on the top of our agenda since uh, um, a few months by now, I would say even before the start of the crisis, because I mean, we were seeing it coming and we were trying to uh, get ready for what was in front of us. Um, the reaction of the European Union has been very, um, uh, I would say, very strong and very united in the sense that they are uh, all the member states, and I remember very vividly an European Council soon after the start of the uh, aggression, the Russian aggression in Ukraine with a very same, very solid sense of unity, all the member states that were willing to move together to uh, um, give a clear response to uh, what was happening in Ukraine. And we have articulated our strategy around three pillars, which was essentially how to continue to support Ukraine, how to uh, um, isolate Russia uh, diplomatically, and how to uh, sanction Russia for the actions that they were taking. You mentioned sanctions. Sanctions don't seem to have gone far enough. Russia is about to announce a, a massive trade surplus, and it's still earning billions from Europe through energy and from the rest of the world as well. I think that I would say you have to look at sanctions, uh, first of all, uh, in uh, um, the short term for the impact that they have, also for the political significance that they have, because they are stating a clear sense of um, uh, negative reaction to uh, the initiatives taken by, by Russia, but you have to see them also over the uh, medium and longer term, and which is the impact that they may have on the uh, functionality of the economic system. And that's true, for example, also when it comes to uh, um, energy, uh, which is certainly one very difficult area uh, to uh, agree upon among member states, but the decision that has been taken it will be taken to decouple Europe from the dependency from the Russian dependence in terms of energy, something that has long-term consequences. So I think that we need to look at the short-term, but also to the medium and longer-term impact of these sanctions. You're talking sort of the short-term, the long-term effectiveness and damage of those sanctions. People are also in Europe very worried uh, especially in Brussels, about the effect of sanctions on the EU economy, uh, Germany in particular. How have you managed to persuade Germany to bring in more sanctions and perhaps cut Europe uh, away from uh, reliance on Russian gas and oil? Well, one of the main points that we have always uh, uh, maintained is that uh, sanctions have to hurt Russia more than had to hurt uh, uh, the European Union. So we have tried to calibrate these sanctions in a way which was having an impact on the uh, Russian economy without at the same time creating uh, uh, excessive problems to our economy. Let's be clear that we are all paying a price for this. Uh, there is no doubt about that. And it is true that it is uh, particularly uh, visible in uh, certain countries of the European Union which have more uh, uh, intense economic links with, uh, uh, with Russia. Uh, but I wouldn't uh, like to single out any specific country from that point of view, and uh, um, certainly not Germany in, uh, from that 
from that perspective. I think that there, there has been, as I was saying before, a very solid and unified uh, reaction. We need also to understand, and I think that this is important, that uh, uh, these um, measures have an impact on our economies, and we need to make it sure that they are not creating, they are not disrupting the uh, economy itself with major consequences, not only for the European Union, but also for third countries outside the European Union. So we need to be, how to say, to act responsibly from that point of view, and once again, giving a clear sign to Russia, but at the same time, not destroying our economies and the economies of our third countries linked to us. Wow, that's a real tightrope to walk, that you want to inflict pain on Russia, but you don't want to inflict damage on the European economy. How are you going to achieve that? Well, as you said, I mean, it's a, it's a thin line and we need to uh, walk along this uh, thin line. That's the, uh, uh, that's the, the scope of the exercise. I think that uh, the more we move ahead in terms of sanctions, the more this exercise is delicate and there is a, a fine balance that needs to be, uh, uh, to be reached. But I think that we are moving in, uh, in this direction. And as I said, I mean, if you look also at the uh, uh, last communication which has been uh, uh, presented by the uh, uh, European institutions, by the Commission, together with the High Representative, concerning the way we want to uh, de-link our economies and our dependence in terms of uh, oil and gas from Russia, certainly a very clear indication of uh, uh, this decision. So once again, a, a certainly a very uh, uh, narrow path, but it's the one that we need to have to follow. What plans then does the EU have for making alternative arrangements, uh, alternative energy arrangements in terms of oil and gas, steering uh, Europe away from reliance on, on Russian energy? Well, there are a number of things, first of all. The most immediate one is how you can uh, um, reduce the uh, uh, consume of energy, so how the kind of savings that you can do in order to uh, reduce consumption. Second one is how you can find alternative sources of uh, uh, energy. Uh, and that's what we are doing with a number of uh, third countries who are supporting, uh, uh, for example, with uh, uh, liquefied gas or um, with alternative uh, uh, oil coming from, uh, from other routes. And uh, the third one is to uh, uh, create, let's say, new uh, infrastructures that can help um, alleviating the dependence, especially for countries that are landlocked and so that are more dependent on uh, uh, infrastructures. And last but certainly not least, how we can increase the uh, um, level of our uh, alternative and renewable uh, uh, sources, which is something that we have already started and that we need to accelerate even further. So uh, solar, uh, hydropower. Uh, um, those, those are, those are, yeah, those are long-term energy sources, though, aren't they? In the short term, you need oil and gas. Would you like to see OPEC uh, perhaps um, allow more oil onto the market or, or more liquefied natural gas? Well, it's the, again, I mean, we are all uh, uh, ensuring new contracts from uh, different sources, both when, both when it comes to LNG and when it comes to oil. So it's the uh, uh, Russia is not the only producer in the world and it's not the only supplier in the world. And we will need to, uh, uh, to work in that direction to uh, alleviate the dependence and to uh, find substitutes to Russia. 
Talking about going back to directly to Ukraine uh, and the conflict there, how would you describe the EU's relationship with NATO? It's a very uh, uh, intense and constructive relationship. I mean, we are working a lot. We have worked and we, are keep, we keep on working a lot with, uh, with NATO because there is a, a very uh, a clear complementarity between the uh, hard security which is provided by NATO, security uh, um, which we all know that has been uh, at the basis of the uh, transatlantic uh, community and the uh, kind of uh, security that the European Union can provide when it comes to uh, other areas. And I'm thinking particularly to hybrid or to uh, um, um, cyber, where the European Union has a lot of expertise and they are uh, very much to bring to the table. So I see, uh, again, a very uh, strong complementarity between the two uh, um, organizations and the way we are working in a very concerted fashion when it comes, for example, to uh, the uh, Ukrainian issue. Where does the EU stand on Turkey's objections to NATO enlargement? I'm talking obviously about Sweden and Finland. Well, we will, uh, we will see at the end of the process. I think it is, uh, what is important is that uh, uh, there is a very uh, uh, active communication going on at all levels with, uh, uh, with uh, Turkey, but not only with Turkey. I mean, it's uh, Finland and uh, um, Sweden have been very active reaching out uh, uh, to Turkey, to the United States, to Canada, to uh, all the other non-European uh, members of uh, of NATO, knowing that within the European Union they are uh, enjoying a very strong support for this move that would uh, um, strengthen the security of uh, the uh, European continent. I, I'll call it a taboo. The EU have long had a taboo about getting involved in in defence uh, as a union, hasn't it? Uh, is this is this slight, is that resolve slightly weakening because of the conflict on the on the Europe's borders? I think that uh, uh, we need to distinguish. In, in a sense, uh, uh, the European Union had managed to develop over years a security dimension, which was quite relevant. I just want to mention the fact that we have 18 uh, uh, missions uh, operational in the world in uh, different continents, mainly in Africa, but also in the Middle East or in the Western Balkans, that are providing security uh, uh, to our continent. So I would need that if we speak about the uh, a broader concept when it comes to security and defense, the uh, European Union uh, um, has been very active since uh, quite some time. And now it is true that we have taken a further step forward and the strategic compass, the sort of uh, overall uh, strategy uh, that the uh, European Union has developed for uh, uh, planning its future work in the area of security and defense is certainly part of this new willingness to uh, be able to respond to a number of uh, threats and challenges that we are facing as European Union. And once again, we want to do this in very close cooperation and complementarity with NATO. This is significant, Secretary General. You're, you're talking about a new willingness to get involved. This is a change of direction, isn't it, by the European Union? 
Definitely, yes. There is much more. Uh, first of all, there is uh, the world has become much more uncertain, so there, there is much more a need for uh, um, security and to provide security to European citizens. And the European Union has agreed to uh, take part of this responsibility. Um, and to uh, uh, make a huge effort. If you see what has happened in the last few months, this has been a, a paradigmatic shift from all points of view. It's not only um, um, uh, Sweden and Finland uh, joining the European Union, is Denmark opting in again in the uh, defense sector, uh, is the uh, fundamental increase in the budget of the defense of the uh, uh, European Union member states. So, I mean, there is a a very uh, a clear sense that the world has become much more insecure and the European Union in this world wants to uh, make it sure that, uh, again, the continent and its citizens can feel that the, the, we are more protected and that we are trying to um, uh, support the capacity of our society to become uh, more resilient to uh, threats and challenges coming from outside. Let's pause there, Secretary-General, for a moment. But do stay with us, uh, still to come here on the agenda. We'll be looking beyond Europe's borders to consider future relations with China and the US. Sideline Story brings you all things sports-related. The hottest topics, latest events, juiciest stories, all with a very personal take. Subscribe to Sideline Story Podcast for heated sports discussions covering events that are happening in China and around the world. Let's continue our conversation now with Stefano Sanino. He's Secretary General of the European External Action Service. Secretary General. Let's talk now about the possibility, how you assess the possibility, the level of risk indeed, of this conflict in Ukraine extending beyond Ukrainian borders. It's, uh, I mean, it's uh, difficult to make assumptions uh, of this kind. Certainly uh, uh, one of the reasons why we have been uh, uh, very strong and clear in the response to, uh, uh, to Russia is that we wanted to make also very clear that this was an uh, attitude and a posture that we would, not, uh, would, would have not accepted. And therefore, uh, I think that the, uh, this kind of preoccupation is also guiding us in uh, the future action that we want to, uh, uh, to take. Um, but again, I think that the uh, reply has been uh, very clear, very strong. And on the top of that, uh, if you speak about the, the countries of the European Union, the NATO uh, uh, coverage, uh, the strengthening of the presence of NATO on the eastern flank in Europe has been uh, extremely important and has also given a very clear sign to, uh, to Russia. Does your commitment to NATO mean there is no longer uh, any suggestion of a European Union army? I think that the, uh, uh, this is something that it's really not on the cards. I mean, uh, nobody's speaking about uh, a European army. We are speaking about uh, uh, creating uh, capabilities, more flexible, uh, more able to intervene uh, in specific circumstances if there are some specific crises that may arise. Um, uh, 
capabilities that are, um, let's say, trained on a regular basis, um, capabilities that have a, a center of uh, control and command here in the, uh, the EU institutions. But again, at the same time, uh, we are speaking about capabilities that remain in the hands and under the control and the authority of the member states, and that, by the way, can be used both in the EU context, but also in a NATO context. You mentioned working with NATO uh, very closely, um, and your service is responsible for intelligence, defence, but especially security. Uh, how exactly do you work with other global organisations to make Europe more secure? Well, I mean, NATO is certainly uh, um, the one with which we have very uh, um, extended relationship, and once again, with with, with which we are working uh, very intensively, especially in this uh, in this last months. But there is a very strong cooperation with the UN and with the UN peacekeeping uh, uh, department, um, and we have a lot of. Uh, uh, missions on the ground that are working alongside with the United Nations. Mali is uh, one of, uh, of these, just to make an example. Uh, but we are working also very closely with the uh, African Union or with ASEAN, because we want to make it sure that the, uh, these partnerships in, are strong and solid and can create a, a common basis to face common challenges and threats. To persuade, I mean, your brief is huge. I mean, you, you talked about it earlier, it's a very wide brief indeed. But not only is your brief wide, you're also having to deal with 27 very diverse countries who run mm -hmm. their own foreign policies uh, in parallel to the common one. To persuade them uh, to come together, to persuade them to work together and talk with one voice. How many, how many people do you have to kick to make that happen? <laughs> Well, there are a number of uh, uh, consolidated mechanisms. Uh, consolidated mechanisms. That's a wonderful phrase. I like that. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you have uh, uh, bodies where the 27 member states are represented and they are meeting on a very regular basis. And you have it at the um, regional level, you have at working group level, you have at the um, ambassadorial level. Um, and then at the end of the day, you have a Foreign Affairs Council level, and then you have a European Council level. So there is a structure which is allowing the uh, position of the 27 to uh, be harmonized and to, uh, uh, and to become a single position. That's, how to say, in a way, the difficulty, but also the beauty of the exercise, because I mean, it is true that you have harmonized 27 positions, but once you've done this, you have a very strong capacity to act and to impact uh, the, the processes. So uh, um, it's, a, it's a huge effort, but it's an effort worthwhile. How much is carrot and how much is stick? It's not characteristic. It's uh, it's very much. Uh, uh, I think that the most important thing is to uh, have a common awareness, uh, to be uh, to be clear about what you want to do, uh, which are the objectives that you want to achieve, and then once this is clear, you also find the best way to do that. Uh, you, you you talk about um, uh, discussion uh, and um, uh, moderation. You recently met the U.S. Deputy Secretary Wendy Sherman to talk about China. What was on the agenda there? 
Well, we have, um, uh, first of all, more in general, we have with the United States, uh, uh, and especially with this administration, we have developed a very strong uh, um, cooperation and a very strong relationship. Uh, this administration has made a, a strategic choices to uh, uh, have the European Union as partner. So not only its member states, uh, but also the EU as such. And this has created a real uh, um, dynamic in in our relationship. Among the many dialogues that we have uh, with the United States, there is also one uh, on China, where we are uh, uh, comparing our agendas, where we are uh, looking at different uh, um, aspects of our relations with, uh, with China. And we are trying to uh, um, come up with unified position in order to uh, make it sure that we can um, say, uh, respond better to the challenges that are coming uh, um, on the Chinese side. Is it a vital relationship, Europe and China? Uh, I'm thinking vital in terms of geopolitics. I mean, there is no doubt that uh, the relation between the EU and uh, China is fundamental. China is a, a, a extremely relevant uh, uh, political and economic uh, actor on the international scene. And so we need to uh, be able to uh, find a way of managing a complex relationship, which is made of many things, which is made of, uh, uh, let's say, uh, say um, an element of uh, uh, systemic competition and we have to be able to, uh, uh, to work together because again the, uh, uh, the management of this relation is essential for the uh, stability of the world. Secretary General Stefano Sanino, many thanks to you for joining us on the agenda. Thank you very much, thanks to you. Coming up on our future agenda Web 3.0 is here, but is the metaverse really worth its multi-trillion dollar price tag? But for now, from me, Stephen Cole, and all the Agenda team here in London, it's goodbye. <laughs>